1: Hey guys, and welcome back to the Dope Black Woman podcast. It's Fashan here, one of the co-founders. And on this episode, we are joined by Dr. Adia, a licensed clinical psychologist to help us maximize our self-worth. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Where are you actually based? Because I know you were saying New York time, but yes, I'm in Chicago. I
0: figured New York time was just like an easier Set point, for our our timing coordinations, but I'm in Chicago,
1: Illinois. Okay. Every time you were saying the time, I had to keep going on Google and being like New York to UK, and I was talking to someone, and they were like, "It's just plus four hours," and I was like, "No, actually, it's five right now." Um, and I was thinking, how do you even know that? I have no idea. So you've I've learned something already before we even got into the crux of the interview, which is brilliant. But something we ask all our guests when we start is what makes you a dope black woman?
0: I love that question. Um, I would say it's the fact that I am living life full out. I'm thriving unapologetically as a black woman, being my bold, authentic self in the world and using my power to help other people. I love that, especially about being unapolog- unapologetic. Mm.
1: So I was on your website doing a bit of a nosy before we got into the, into the interview. And I think it will be interesting, just to give a bit of context into who you are and your story, if we kind of start it by you telling me a bit about who you were as a child growing up.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I grew up in sunny Southern California to two black parents who are married. Um, And, you know, life was generally pretty good. Like we lived a pretty comfortable life. But I thought that there's something wrong with me and I think part of that was being a black girl in a predominantly white school space right and sort of feeling different and I didn't get any explicit messages thankfully from teachers or other students that I wasn't smart, but I sort of knew I was different I knew that maybe other people didn't like me as much I was louder. Uh, I got kicked out of a children's choir once because I was like too loud. My voice was too bold and too loud. (laughs) And, you know, so this just sort of like gave me this sense of like, maybe I'm not worthy. Maybe I'm not lovable. Maybe something is wrong with me. And, you know, that really kind of set me on this journey to try to prove that I was worthy and lovable, which I, which I did you know, at first it was trying perfection and trying to be the best friend and overachievement and trying to find the perfect relationship. And, um, you know, I was anxious. I overworked, I, you know, did too much because I thought that I needed to do all of that Mm. in order to be worthy. Um, and it wasn't until I was an adult that I sort of realized none of that was working, mm. that it wasn't going to work. Um, and part of that is my own journey and training to become a clinical psychologist and sort of realizing that, you know, it it wasn't going to be that I was going to find the answer outside of me. I was going to need to look internally. And that really set me on this journey to think about and figure out what it means to embrace my unconditional self-worth and, because life feels so much better. Mm-hmm. Now that I know I'm worthy, I'm really passionate about sharing it with other people. Amazing. And on that journey of, you know, trying to be a perfectionist
1: to everyone almost in, in all your, in all your relationships and all your friendships, was there anything in your family setup or I guess the relationship you had with your parents that you think contributed towards that?
0: That's a good question. I think there's, you know, maybe a couple of things. So one is my parents were not child-centered, right? So our family was, even though I was an only child, our family was not oriented so that I was the center of it, right? Like Mm -hmm. we were not taking like millions of Disneyland trips, you know, as a family, it was like, my parents wanted to go to this place and I was coming along and that was fine. Um, And so I think, I don't necessarily think that the, the, our family should have centered on me, but I do think the, the fact that I sort of felt like I needed to fit into their world and probably be more mature than I was maybe ready. And this sort of distance, the fact that they were both introverts, I'm an extrovert, all of that sort of combined to make me feel like I needed to be different, um, than I was to be worthy or lovable. And they're also, I've always told me they loved me but they've never, they communicating that they're proud of me has not been something that my parents did explicitly and they're very smart. Right. So my dad got his graduate degree, PhD from Yale. My mom went to Princeton and graduated in three years. So it was always sort of like, okay, like that's just normal, right? Like that's not me reaching that isn't extra. It's normal. It's expected. And so even when I was achieving, it was kind of like, okay, good job. (laughs) <laughs> like that's what you're supposed to do <laughs> did you ever
1: then find yourself like trying to still prove yourself worth through accomplishments because they already set a high standard so did you, did you kind of f- find yourself trying to like compete with the standard that they had set for themselves
0: yeah oh I went down that road <laughs> I mean I it, it's interesting to look back at it now and I, I think that the career path I chose was a good fit but I also think that there was something about needing to live up to my parents' accomplishments that drove me because both of my parents have PhDs in clinical psychology. And then I I got a PhD in clinical psychology and I had this moment after I defended my dissertation and I had passed my dissertation defense where I just started sobbing because it hit me that that wasn't going to give me the sense of worthiness Mm. that I wanted that i desperately longed for that i was searching for and so that was a real turning point for me because it was like okay even this even reaching this ultimate academic achievement even sort of following in my parents footsteps and proving that i could do the same things that they could do even that wasn't enough yeah. um And, you know, my parents were never like, you have to get a PhD or you, like that was never their style, but I was an anxious kid. And so in the absence of them saying, we love you regardless, and you could do whatever you want. And we're proud of you for whatever. In the absence of that, I sort of created this situation where it was like, I have to do the most and do the best and do, you know, do more and more and more. Um, And yeah, it was, it was, it was a challenge. I mean, I got me to where I am now. So I'm happy that I have the degree and I can do the work that I'm doing because it fits, but it's interesting because I'm in a stage of life now where I'm, you know, have left academia to become an entrepreneur. And this is like the first time where I'm diverting from the path that they took. Um, and so that's sort of an interesting thing for me to be in a space where I'm creating something that's different from what my parents have created.
1: It's weird because often or not, we don't talk about the trauma our parents give us sometimes, even when they're active parents. And like I see it a lot online. I saw the other day there was some stick that some girl was getting because she was a single mom. She's gonna be a single mom because the dad was cheating. And then everyone was saying, well, it's better you stay with him because then at least your child's gonna grow up with two parents. And then someone else was like, it's more damaging the child for them for them to grow up in a household where people hate each other, they're just tolerating each other and there's no love and I think that sometimes a lot of parents especially older generations they kind of miss that mm-hmm. they kind of felt like if we stay together it's great we've got to do it because of money we've got to do it to survive and you didn't think about how it then had a ripple effect on their children but yeah I've completely gone off tangent there sorry you just you <laughs> I feel like my mind was doing a spider diagram I was were speaking but like you know, talking about thing. your experiencing of trying to like prove your worth through accomplishments How do you then shake that narrative? Because I think that's something that a lot of people can actually relate to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it requires you to think about what you bring that's different from what you do, right? We're really, I think, conditioned, especially in Western societies, to think we are what we do. Our worth in the world is based on what we do. The value we bring is based on our output. Mm. But I think that, What we do is less important than who we be, right? If you think about your friends, if you think, you know, about your family, the people that you love the most, feel most nourished and supported by, Mm -hmm. and you think about what makes that really wonderful, it's probably not what they do. Mm. It's probably how they be with you. And I think, I think of that in my work as a therapist, right? At the end of the day, I think the biggest offering I give to my clients is really how I show up with them as being present, bearing witness more than the specific strategies that I offer. Those can be helpful, but like it's more showing up as a human and bearing witness and being with them and seeing them and seeing them beyond their struggle. And so I think when we can connect to the fact that our jobs, our schooling, these roles we play can be containers for our being in the world, but are not our being in the world, right? When we can connect to the parts of ourselves that go beyond that that helps us to let go of the idea that our worth is only about what we produce, what we do. Um, and it helps us to remember that who we be is powerful. Mm. So I
1: guess I guess the, the advice in that is to like shake or get rid of our attachments to our careers and things like that that define us and actually focus on who we are, like as in we're kind people, we're loyal people, we're loving people and our our personality traits rather than like, I'm a journalist, I live in a mansion, I have five cars and and those sort of things.
0: (laughs) Right, and I think it doesn't mean that you just like don't work, right? But it's so, okay, so if you're a journalist, how is your journalism impactful? Well, do you ask really good questions? Do you intuitively sense what needs to be asked and connect with people in a way that makes them comfortable so that they'll share their stories? Mm. Are you able to frame things in ways that help people to deeply understand what's going on, right? Like there's, and, and then journalism is a container for that but you mm. could leave journalism and still do that in the world in a Mm. different iteration. But when you think the journalism makes me, or being a journalist makes me, Mm. then if you lose that job in journalism, or you leave that job in journalism, you're going to think, well, I don't know who I am anymore. And so many people go through that. But if you think, well, I'm a curious person, I'm somebody who connects, I'm somebody who sees people and stories in a unique way, Then you can say I use that with journalism and one day I may use that in another role.
1: Yeah, I like that. Something else you mentioned as well was this idea of being a perfect friend. How does that show up for you or how did it show up for you?
0: For me, it looked like selflessness. Mm. never needing anything, never asking for anything. And so what I did was I created these one-sided relationships. Mm. Sometimes it would be relationships with people who who took and didn't give, Mm. but sometimes it would be with in relationship with people who would give, but because I was too scared to ask for anything because I didn't want (laughs) to be too much, or I didn't want to be a burden. I wouldn't allow them to give to me. Right. And so then I was always the one who was the helper, the one who had it together, all of this stuff. And the problem with that is that vulnerability breeds connection and so when you're never vulnerable it's really hard to get close to people and when you have one-sided relationships unless it's a parent and an infant right or parent and a very small child relationships should be reciprocal um there should be a give and take you you need to learn to give and you need to learn to receive and so it meant that some of my relationships weren't the most healthy I didn't have a ton of toxic relationships but that they weren't close connected and intimate in the way I think our best relationships really are
1: yeah and how do you know when you've crossed the line with someone who is a good friend and someone who's striving to be a perfect friend because I think a lot of the things you say you said just then I definitely resonate with and I think it's what 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 stuck out was actually the idea of things being two way because I feel like I've got rid of a lot, <laughs> not like not like in a, an aggressive or a or a, an abrupt way, but I've just distanced myself or like changed the closeness of some of the relationships that I had because I realised it wasn't serving me in a way that was beneficial to my long term goals and long term plans. And they did they weren't progressive in a way that would help me to contribute towards the person I want to be. They they were more mm-hmm. just keeping me where I'm at or they were, as you said, they, were, they wasn't two-way. It was, I was just giving, constantly giving, giving, giving. But how does, how does, how would someone know when there's someone who naturally gives, there's someone who naturally is the help offer, and that's who they are. That's the soft skills I was talking about earlier in terms of being caring or being loyal versus being someone who strives to do those things because they're, they're lacking self-worth because they feel like they have to be a perfect person.
0: I think it's useful to notice the energy with which you do something. Mm-hmm. So is it an anxious energy? Like I better be there for my friend because if I'm not there then they're going to leave me and they're not going to be happy with me and I won't have any friends and they won't think I'm a good friend, right? Like is there sort of an anxious energy around I've got to prove, I've got to do? Is there frustration, irritation, resentment when you don't get the Oh my gosh, you're so amazing, you're such a good friend, right? Like if you don't get that, is that like a sugar for how could you, do you know what I did to, to make sure I could be here for you? Right. Mm. And I'm not saying you shouldn't expect appreciation because I think that's healthy, but when it feels like you're, you're living for the appreciation or the appreciation is the main driver because you need that reinforcement, then we have a problem. Mm. I think, you know if you feel like okay this might be a sacrifice for me to be with for my be there for my friend in this way or offer this and i'm going to make the choice to do it because they're a good friend that feels like a different sort of energy to move into and it's not about proving that you're good enough there's not this anxious energy but you also know that you might say i can't do it right now and that that should feel okay too Right. And that you should feel like they're not going to flip out on you. Right. You're not going to think I'm the worst friend in the world for setting a boundary or saying that you have a limited capacity, but that, you know, there's this balance. I think the other piece is it's not that we expect our friendships and relationships to be perfectly balanced every day, where everybody's giving and taking the same amount, like across every day, but that there are sometimes ebbs and flows, right? There are periods when we're really struggling and we need our friends to show up for us in a way that we are not able to show up for them. And then hopefully there are periods where, you know, the reverse happens or evens out.
1: Yeah. Something you mentioned just then was boundaries. And I think, um, definitely amongst my friends, (laughs) I think that's something I'm really good at instilling and creating, but I think for a lot of people, it's not that easy. It's not that straightforward because I guess sometimes I can feel like there's a risk involved. You can feel like you're going to lose that person. But for you and with your experience, how would you encourage someone who's maybe listening and they're terrible at creating boundaries to with their friends? This is something they need to instill in 2022. Like, how does someone start? And what does that look like? Like, what sort of conversations would you encourage people to have?
0: I think... The first thing is to try to get to the root of why it feels so scary to set boundaries, right? And then it might be kind of what you said, like, well, I'm scared that I'll be rejected or I'll lose the friendship, right? I'm scared that maybe they'll think I'm selfish. And if you're in one of these modes where being the perfect selfless friend makes you worthy, it may ultimately feel like. This may make me unworthy or they may think I'm unworthy or unlovable if I set a boundary and that feels like a threat to my worthiness. So the first thing is sort of let's identify what's making it so hard because once that's identified, then you get to choose if you're going to act out of that fear, or if you're going to do something different, but if you don't recognize the fear or why it's coming up, then it's really hard to make different choices. So that's the first thing is try to figure out why it feels so scary. And then once you've identified, okay, I'm scared that this friend is going to reject me, or I'm scared that this will mean I'm unworthy. And it, and if you look at that and you're like, well, I don't really believe that. Like, I don't If a friend sets a boundary with me, I'm not like, well, I'm done with you. Then, okay, it's probably not gonna happen when you do it. So then you get to make a choice. What is the boundary that you wanna set, right? And thinking about it, I really encourage people to try to set boundaries outside of a situation where they're angry. Because a lot of times when people have trouble setting boundaries, they don't set the boundary, they don't set the boundary, they get ticked off, they don't set the boundary, they don't set the boundary. And then it's like, ah, you know, how, why could you do that? And I'm never going to talk to you. Don't ever call me again, right. Like it becomes this thing mm-hmm. because they couldn't set it before. And so try to do this before you are angry, or if you are angry, wait and then do it later. Right. Mm-hmm. But then the idea is to say, Hey, I so appreciate you. I really love talking to you. Our conversations are so wonderful. I've also noticed that talking every day is a lot for me. And because I'm an introvert, I need some time alone. I need some nights where I'm really just not talking to anyone. So I'm hoping that we could, you know, plan to talk a couple times a week instead of every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and that will make me feel even more engaged in the conversations that we do have. Right. And so the idea behind that is you're, you're actually setting the boundary to maintain a healthy connection and relationship, not to push the person away. Now, I do like to say that often when you set a boundary, the other person has a tantrum, just like a kid. When you'd say to the kid, no candy, when you're in the middle of the candy aisle, they're going to have probably have a tantrum. Adults do the same thing, right? So we have to sort of anticipate that the other person may not like it, and they may throw a tantrum, and we have to be willing to stick with our boundary anyway. And when
1: they don't want to take the boundary, would you then just maybe reconsider the friendship?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it is a good, it is a good time to consider reconsider friendship, right? If if you're setting a boundary that you think is thoughtful and intentional and not reactive and they are unwilling to respect your boundary, like if they're like, cool. And then they keep calling you every day in this example that I'm making up, <laughs> then, you know, that at some point you, you might say, Hey, you know, I, we talked about this. Part of it is reinforcing it. So if they call you every day, don't answer every day. <laughs> right? <laughs> like you don't have to answer, but if they keep doing it, or if they're like, you never answer my calls and it's this big thing, then you might say, you know, I communicated to you why I was setting this boundary. And I really want this friendship to work. I'm not sure why it's, it's hard for you to respect the boundary. And if they're, you know, getting upset with you and angry with you and, you know, doing all this stuff and not respecting you, then it may be a time to say, maybe this friendship isn't going to work. Um, and maybe you need to, to reconsider. And obviously that's hard and disappointing, but if it's a drain on you emotionally and mentally, then it's probably not worth it.
1: Yeah. I think boundaries are really interesting. Um, I've got like five really close friends, I would say and they all know that when it comes to boundaries that's something that I enforce a lot and not in a way that's like I'm putting up walls but I mean like I'm really transparent and I can I find it easy to communicate when I love something and when I don't love something and what I think the benefit that I get from it is actually I get boundaries back which make things just feel so much more better so like so for example you know when you're talking about before about like messaging your friend or like and then feeling like a burden I will never feel like a burden to my friend because all those particular friends, because I know they haven't got the capacity for the conversation, they'll communicate that to me. So, like the other day, I remember I was, I, I was having a mayor. I don't know what was wrong with me, but I was having a mayor that day. And I texted one of my best friends and I was like, uh, what did I, te- I sent her? Like a parag- I think I sent her a paragraph, like a long, I think I sent her a paragraph. And her response was like, Shan, it was like a Wednesday or Thursday. And her response was like, Shan, I've had a terrible week, start of the week. I don't have the capacity for this right now. But once I do, I will come back to it. And just the fact that she acknowledged the message, knowing that she was going through whatever she was going through, actually gave me a a piece of comfort. And I was able to be like, you know what? No worries, thank you. And I continued, I did what I needed to do to make myself feel better that night. And then I think two or three days later we spoke. And I realized, especially when we just both spoke about what we was going through, that what she was going through was a lot more serious and had a lot more of a longer impact on an individual's life than what I was going through but she was still able to listen to what I was going through first because I was the one that reached out and then take it back and I was saying to her at the end like it just it just really reinforces the importance of boundaries because if she didn't communicate that to me she might have spoke to me on that day and been really dismissive or been really snappy or giving me shit advice or whatever it was because she didn't have the capacity to talk to me at that time and I think that happens a lot like I've had I had another friend. I'm not friends with them anymore because they didn't understand boundaries, and it was getting a bit toxic for me. But I had another friend, and if I went to her advice for something trivial, let's say for like about a boy, let's say that if she was going through a bad time with a guy, her her advice would then be bad advice. It would be like, "I'll oh, get rid of him. <laughs> or oh, don't talk to him." or like it would come from an "I hate men" perspective because mm. that's what she was. That was. That's what she was internalizing. Whereas. What she should have done in that situation was recognize, you know, it's probably not the best time for me to have a conversation with you about this because where I'm at, isn't something that's going to be positive or conducive to where you need to go or the journey that you're on. So yeah. If anyone's listening now, now's the time to enforce boundaries. (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah. I, I love the first example with your, your friend and how she was able to sort of like say, hey, here's where I'm at. I'm acknowledging I'll get back to it. And that you were able to hear that, take that in and say, okay, great. Like that is such, that's such a, it's such a shiny example of healthy communication mm. um, because, and then you were able to talk about it when both of you were ready, which is so wonderful. Yeah. And I know you're really passionate about helping
1: people in particular to embrace their unconditional self-worth, but what do you think that looks like? And then what steps can someone who's not there yet take to try and reach that?
0: Yeah. So I think of unconditional self-worth as the belief that you deserve to be alive, to be loved and cared for and to take up space. And I think when we believe we're unconditionally worthy, we treat ourselves that way. Mm -hmm. right? We treat ourselves with love, with care, with kindness and respect, right? We go through the world believing that, you know, we have gifts to share. We have things to do in this world, but not feeling like we have to do, do, do in order to prove that we're worthy, right? And so again, it's sort of an energy shift, right? Doing from a space of, you know, being assured in yourself and your worthiness versus doing to try to prove that you're worthy. Um, and, you know, the things that I recommend to people to get to a place where you embrace your unconditional self-worth are really practices that help you to shift your relationship with yourself, right? So it's about, you know, if you tend to criticize yourself and shame yourself and just make yourself feel really badly when you make a mistake, how can you offer yourself compassion and kindness in, instead, right? Because what that communicates is even when I make a mistake, even when things are going wrong or are tough in my my life. I'm still worthy. I'm still worthy of love and care. And I'm going to offer that to myself. Right. It could look like practicing self-acceptance. Right. I think, you know, we started this conversation you asked me about what makes me a dope black woman and it's, you know, being authentic. And that means embracing all of me. There are parts of me that are not like straight laced and like normal. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like we all Mm -hmm. have parts of ourselves that are not normal, that are a little bit weird or a little bit different. And when we can embrace that and embrace the fact that we don't have to be some perfect image, um, some ideal model in order to be worthy, that helps us to remember that we're worthy just as we are, as we're created, right? When we can Sort of also connect to people who are supportive of us and help to remind us that we're worthy, even when we're struggling. That helps us to embrace our unconditional self worth. And so, all of these things are practices because they're not intended to be, oh, things that you do once and then that's it, but it's intended to help you to orient to a new way of relating to yourself and showing up in the world.
1: And, you know, you I know you, you work with a lot of women and you've got experience with women who are really successful, but they still don't feel worthy in, 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 that, in their own right. What kind of advice do you have for those high achievers that feel like that?
0: Yeah, you know, I really encourage self-compassion. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of high achieving women are very harsh and critical with themselves, right? They are their own worst critic. They put themselves down. They do not treat themselves very well. Um, And when I say don't treat themselves very well, it doesn't like on the outside, they may have the clothes and the cars and get their nails done and do all the sort of things, right, that like self-care has turned into, right? (laughs) But on the inside, right, like are they really caring for themselves? Are they setting boundaries? Are they taking breaks? Are they resting? Are they offering themselves love, comfort, and affirmation? And so I think of self-compassion as a really important practice so that people can get into a healthy relationship with themselves, not waiting for everyone else to do that for them, but starting with themselves. And you know, what I have found is that when we are able to be kind, compassionate, and loving to ourselves, that's when we're more likely to attract other relationships, whether they're romantic or friendships, where other people show up for us and with us in that same way.
1: How do we get better at that, though? Because I feel like I, I saw a tweet the other day, and this was kind of this conversation reminds me of a bit here, where they were talking about the fact that they'll get they'll reach achievements and they won't really be able to acknowledge them in the moment. They'll then look for, look for the next thing, and I feel like I've been like that a lot, and I and I always say like, yeah, I'm not gonna. I always say like, yeah, I'm not gonna do that anymore. And now I've got to a part where like, I acknowledge it for an evening, but maybe like getting a takeaway or doing something like that. But it will never be anything like long lasting, but it's a conscious thing that I know I'm trying to program in my head to actively work on. But how does someone like me or the people that were in the Twitter space, for example, get better at showing ourselves a level of compassion?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I think the sort of working really hard for an accomplishment, then you get the accomplishment and maybe it feels good for a few days and then you're off to the next thing, right? Like that is a a common pattern. I have certainly been there. And I think some of it is like, can you actually let yourself soak in the accomplishment? And that looks like breathing because so often we're sort of like people are like great job, great job. We're like, yeah, no, no, no. It wasn't that big of a deal? No, 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 no. Right. Like we sort of push it off. So that's one thing. Two is, can you look at what you did? What did you do that helped you to get there? Well, you were resourceful, you put in this time and effort and work and you thought were thoughtful and whatever, right? So can you really acknowledge what did you do to get the accomplishment? Like really take it in and that's important. One, because it helps you to feel more like, yeah, I really did earn this. And two, because it reminds you the next time you're facing a challenge that you have the skills and you have the strategies to accomplish something again. Right. But instead of having sort of amnesia, like, Oh, I'm never going to figure this out. It's like, well, you've figured out hard things before. Like what mm-hmm. helped you do that? You can apply those same things. So that's one part. And then in terms of self-compassion, there are sort of three core components of self-compassion. And I talk about black self-compassion and I added a fourth. So one is mindfulness. So mm-hmm. it's really tuning in. Like, what are you feeling? <laughs> can you slow down enough to check in with yourself to see what you're actually feeling? What emotions are there? What thoughts are you having? So often high achievers are rushing, 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 busy, busy, busy. Mm -hmm. There's no time for ourselves, or we're sort of just, we're distracting ourselves with busyness or scrolling or whatever. So can you slow down enough to tune in and just try to figure out what you're feeling? The second part is common humanity. Can you remember that you're having a human experience, right? That experiencing sadness or disappointment or frustration or failure doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It's actually part of being a human. Mm-hmm. The third component is self-kindness. Mm-hmm. Can you be kind to yourself? And when that's hard for people, I encourage them to imagine comforting a puppy or favorite baby animal, or maybe the little one inside of them. That's usually who is activated when we're feeling bad. Mm. Right. For me, that looks like, Oh, baby girl. Oh, Oh, I know this is hard. Like, it's okay. Like I'm here, I'm here. Right. Offering that comfort. And then the fourth component, which I added for black self-compassion is honoring your body. Mm -hmm. Right. I think so many of us, black women have been socialized into a way of being that looks like override all your physical symptoms, push through tiredness, push through fatigue, push through hunger, keep going, work, 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 put right. Like that is sort of this socialization. It's, it's history, right. In the U S right. If you're, if your ancestors were enslaved, they had to do that, right. That was survival. And so I think shifting that and saying, how do I honor my body in this moment? What do I need? Right. And how do I give myself that not wait for somebody else to give it to me, but to give myself the rest, the care, right. The gratitude (laughs) that I need and deserve. So those are some of the components that I think help people to practice self-compassion.
1: And you mentioned just there, um, overworking, is that something you can relate to?
0: I am releasing the overworking. I am letting go of the belief that you have to work hard and long to be successful. Um, You know, in this past year, my first year of entrepreneurship, I've stopped working weekends. I've stopped working nights, right? Like I'm really working on letting go of these habits that I had for years of like, Mm -hmm. always, always, always working, always doing something. Um, and it's been an adjustment, but it is so nice (laughs) to just let myself relax. And I've had to like sort of practice it and get myself into it because it didn't come naturally. Um, but I understand the pull Mm -hmm. and I'm actively working against the constant working nonstop kind of situation. And for someone else who kind of
1: relate to that, what does it look like to start a journey of trying to quit ever working yourself? Is it, I guess, creating your own level of self boundaries? Is it for the sound of things for you, what was quite useful was creating new routines? Is that the sort of thing that you would advise?
0: First deciding that you want to, and then yeah, figuring out what are the boundaries. So when do you want to stop working in the evenings? When do you want to start in the mornings? And then like, what are the boundaries? So if you work for an organization, do you turn off your email? Right. Because if you say, I want to stop working at 7 PM, but then your every ping and notification, right. Even if you don't respond to those emails, your mind is, I can't believe they're going to email me. And tomorrow I'm going to have to, right. You're sort of working in some ways. Right. So it's like, okay, set the boundaries and then take the email off your phone. Right. Or, okay. Maybe you don't start with the full weekend off, but Saturday mornings you take off or Sunday mornings you take off or a full day. And then if you have trouble being still, like I used to plan what you're going to (laughs) do, like if it feels hard, like, okay, what show do you want to watch? Or who do you want to have brunch with? Or what do you want to do so that you don't just feel like I should be working. I should be working. I should be working.
1: And then
0: Notice if your work quality and focus improves. Because my guess and my suggestion is that your work will actually get better when you spend less time doing it and you spend more time resting. Yes. And that we think that if we work around the clock, that's good work. But we all know those nights when you work till 9, 10 p.m., and you're distracted by Instagram and you're sort of working like that is never good work, right? It mm-hmm. takes you three hours to do something that you would take 30 minutes to do in the morning. Right. So Mm -hmm. also notice that, right. You may actually be more efficient and get the same amount of work done in less time, feel better about it and also have the rest and the break.
1: I think that's really good advice actually, because I think, especially with COVID and like working from home, I felt like I was working more And then I was working more Mm -hmm. and then also doing DBW stuff and also trying to like, I was just doing content stuff all the time. And it was very, very recent. I had to really reinforce work boundaries with my colleagues because a lot of us were talking over WhatsApp because we're doing remote working. But what happens is we have WhatsApp groups and we finish it, we all finish at different times, we'll work different days and it'll be your day off and the work chat is going off. And for me, it wasn't as easy as just saying, I'm gonna archive this chat. I will read it. If I see the notification there, like it wasn't, it wasn't like that. And now, now because it was getting to me so much, I I was continuously badgering on for a month, maybe six months. And now we now we all communicate via Slack. And I felt like after like day one of using Slack, my life changed. I said, "Why well, I can mm. breathe? Like I'm able to switch off." And I've never experienced this before because I've always had like WhatsApp chat and stuff like that for work. But it's only when it was a pandemic when it felt more intense. And, I, and when you was talking about stillness, I was, I was smiling and laughing because I'm doing therapy right now for something totally unrelated to what we've been discussing today. But my therapist was, asking, was like to me, he has, he has like squads that he looks at every week. And he's like, oh, the last mm-hmm. few weeks, your squads haven't been that great. And I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, okay, so what are you going to do this week? The normal, he actually said the things that you normally do for self-care, are you, have you been doing them? And I said, well, no, I haven't. But the things that, con- that would contribute towards me negatively I also haven't been in 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 engaging with so it's fine and he was like that's not how it works you you need to continue (laughs) continuously do the things that make you feel better that keep you afloat and I was like oh okay so when you're talking then about planning what you want to do and the stillness I find it interesting because I am someone who likes to be busy that likes to do stuff and when I've now given myself more time I'm like oh shit would I what do I do now <laughs> like what is it what do you do at this time like the other day I watched a program I don't watch tv and I've moved into my own place since July and I haven't I haven't bought a tv here because I literally don't watch anything I'm more of like a podcast person or like maybe the old documentary but recently I'm like I might as well get a tv because now I put boundaries in place of work and extra <laughs> projects I have time to w- watch tv and like join in, in these conversations so yeah I think I say that to say that I think your advice is spot on because I've almost implemented it recently and now it's given me a a chance to be like, and breathe. When work finishes, it's finished. Like you don't have to think about it
0: anymore. We sort of over-index on if you work hard, you're going to be successful because the reality is that the people who work the hardest in our world are usually not the people who make the most. Mm right? Like if you think about people who are in factories, people who are working retail people, right? Like they are often the working the hardest. They may have multiple jobs to make ends meet. Does that equate like millions? No, because our society isn't set up that way. Right. So this sort of false narrative that like, if you just overwork yourself, you will be successful. Or if you are not successful, that means you're not working hard enough. Right. It just, it's problematic. It's capitalistic, right? Like it's, it's just a challenging narrative. And so I do think like, I, like I mentioned, I'm letting go of this idea that work has to be hard and long in order for me to be successful. Right. And I'm trying to embrace the idea of what if it could be easy, right? If I show up and share my gifts, are there ways that I can do that with ease that things can come to me? Um, that I could create wealth, that I can create all of these things and have an impact without overworking myself. And, you know, my income has not gone down since Mm -hmm. I stopped working on the weekends or the evenings. I just feel better. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's, it is sort of re is challenging some of these narratives and then also figuring out what works for us. And again, listening to our bodies, right. Part of why I finally stopped working on the weekends is I was feeling anxious about a project that I was launching and I was like, okay, I got to, you know, work this weekend. And I woke up in the morning and my body was like, nope, like, nah, we're not, nope. We're not doing that today. (laughs) And I was like, okay, all right. Like I'm gonna listen. And I didn't work. And that, and then I just haven't worked on the weekends. And sometimes I'm like, well, maybe I'll just finish up. And, and then I just don't end up doing it. Cause I'm like yeah. sitting on the couch feels so much nicer <laughs> yeah. and it's been fine. Right. And so I think that's where it's sort of, for me honoring my body. And at some point my body was like, no, like we're, no, we're not doing that. You're not doing <laughs> that. Thanks. Thanks for the suggestion. No. I think that's interesting because it goes into my next
1: question really nicely what do you think self-care looks like and how can we create a self-care plan that's actually effective?
0: So I really think it's important for people to sort of personalize their self-care and figure out what works for them because something that may work for me may not work for someone else. So for some people getting their nails done is really self-care, right? Like they're away, they're, you know, their kids aren't Asking for them, they feel right, nice and yeah. pampered. And for other people, they get their nails done every two weeks or every month because they feel like they have to. And if they don't, then people are going to judge their nails. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not a plan. Like, I'm, I'm getting judged, <laughs> right? I'm like, my nails are not de- right. Like, I'm going to mm-hmm. get judged. And why am I spending $75 on it, right? Like, it's so really tuning in what feels good for you. So for me, getting enough sleep. Like I need eight hours. I do not do well without eight hours. And now mm-hmm. I'm pregnant. So I need more than eight hours, right? That's like later. for me, so like prioritizing sleep is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, prioritizing time of connection with friends and with my husband is really important. I'm an extrovert, right? So I like to be with other people and connect with them. Exercise makes me feel good, right? Like I get those endorsements that feels good meditating regularly helps me feel centered and grounded right like those are some of the things that i do on a regular at least weekly basis that help me to feel good in my body that help me to feel like i'm can show up as my best self i love that
1: i love that i think i think you're right it definitely is a personalized thing i really felt triggered about your comment about the nails because i was talking to someone the other day and I made a comment about my nails and I'm like, oh, I really pay attention to things like that. And I was thinking, okay, but this is my hands and my feet and I'm comfortable with the way they are. So just leave me alone. And I, I afterwards, I remember I actually messaged some of my friends and I was like having a conversation with them. And they all had really mixed views and opinions on it. And I think it goes back to what you were saying just then that like, for some people it's essential to get their nails done every two weeks. For some people, they don't see the necessity for the expense and for others, I don't mind just doing it themselves. Or you might be in between, like me. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like mm-hmm. there's almost like whatever social media makes look cool for self care. That's what people, a lot of people, have their standard at or their boundary at. But I think I relate to you a bit, and and well, maybe not of the exercising as much. I like I used to be, but not anymore. But like sleep for me is so important, or having time to myself, like mm. playing music, playing a podcast, like. I would actually say trying like stillness but it's something that I'm still practicing but when I try to create that environment that's when I feel like I'm giving myself self-care when I have a hot bath and the bubbles are there it's the perfect temperature I got my mm-hmm. radar socks in it I got my, my candle lit you know I had the rubber spray the zen is that for me <laughs> is self-care and, and I think I think it's okay for us all to find our own our own different versions but obviously with the work you do as you said you're an entrepreneur you do a lot of work to help different women with so many different stuff so just talk to me about some of the courses and services you offer you have to help women
0: yeah so I have a podcast called unconditionally worthy I have sort of a smaller, shorter course called date yourself four weeks to a healthy relationship with you. And in that program, you learn to let go of self-criticism, practice self-compassion, Um, and to engage in personalized and sustainable self-care. So it's sort of like a a course that helps you sort of build these foundations of having a healthy relationship with yourself and taking care of yourself. And then I have a group coaching program um, called Unconditionally Worthy that helps people embrace their unconditional self-worth. And so that's like a deep dive, sort of an intensive deep dive with my coaching and support that really helps people engage in these practices of self-compassion and forgiveness. forgiveness and connecting to values and self-acceptance and thinking about their relationships and learning to set boundaries so that they can be in a space where life feels really vibrant and full and they're thriving.
1: Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. I really, I really appreciate it. And I feel like there's lots of nuggets that I feel like lots of people will take from it.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode, guys. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe and share it with someone that you think will benefit from this conversation.